All right. Well, I, I had kind of like two ideas or breakdowns, and we can go with either of these. Um, they're both fun. Uh, we could go either for like a, a customer vertical perspective. So we could talk about consumer versus commercial versus like the institutional and secondary markets in financial services. And we could talk about like within each of those, the different types of products and innovations that are happening. Or we could do like a, a more strictly line of business focused conversation. Uh, we could go like talk about innovations in insurance and uh, and credit in all its forms and I don't know crypto. If you want to crack open that bag, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll have to save the. I'm I'm meeting a new crypto person almost every week at this point, so we'll we'll have uh, generations of crypto guests to come. Uh, so we we probably don't have to crack open that nut, especially because you would definitely just run circles around me on that. Uh, I know enough <laughs> I to know. be dangerous, but uh, but not not the good stuff. I mean, I, I like a sector approach. And admittedly, I'll just wait to scale a bit. I think it'd be cool to start with consumer. That's the best way to hook people. Most people, whether they know it or not, at least recognize some aspect of the consumer finance industry. And then uh, if someone's still listening halfway through the show, then that means we've peaked some level of interest, in which case we can move on to the institutional stuff. Cool. That sounds fun to me. Yeah. So, you know, give me a summary then, Jordan. What What is the... We say consumer... Fintech, just let's let's you know do the kind of brainstorm grab bag. What are what are some of the names and, and products and, and things people are doing in that space? All right. So when I think of consumer fintech, I think of mobile banking. Um, I think of um, content based services, which maybe is a little unusual. Unusual. Um, what, what do you think? Like when you think of uh, consumer based or consumer-focused um, fintech. Do, like, do services like, I know you told me about uh, bigger pockets. Um, I'm specifically thinking of NerdWallet as like um, yeah. content-focused consumer brands. Do you think of those guys? Like, do they fall in this bucket? Yeah, they're definitely consumer-focused. Uh, they are almost like a content space. I'd, I'd maybe even separate out these two. So we can talk about that too. I think that's a good... That's actually a good launching point in the in-between maybe is to talk about the consumer fintech content space, which is also kind of exploded, but it explodes alongside the product innovations. So, I mean, in products, we're going to see more stuff that's just, it's helping you do a thing that you either didn't do before in the case of a lot of people, or in many cases, it's just, it's the better mousetrap situation, uh, you know, credit or personal finance, budget balancing, things like mortgage software, uh, certainly passive investing as, as is targeted to individuals is also kind of an interesting part of that. So maybe we'll, so maybe we'll subsplit this subcategory to say there's the, <laughs> the uh, product side and the content side. So kicking off with the product side, what, what are some examples? Maybe just say, what do you use that are good examples in this space? All right, so my list, and I'm actually looking at my bookmark, bookmarks bar right now for my finance section. Um, I use Aspiration, which is probably, I don't know, have you heard of Aspiration? I want to say that name. Does that ring a bell? Sorry, I was muted there. Uh, I do not use Aspiration. Please go on. Uh, so they're a mobile only, I think, uh, bank. Um, I use Lending Club, 
I just got like a tiny bit of money in there just because it was an interesting company. Um, three different credit card providers, um, a few crypto brokerages, and then um, these Mint for tracking my personal finances. And then I've got separate accounts for like 401k, the IRAs, the taxable brokerage accounts, stuff like that. Um, I haven't gotten a mortgage yet. So I have not cracked that bit of the uh, the personal finance market. What's your list? Well, I think it's uh, at this point, I would say it's also worth delineating one thing, which is that there are, I, I want to be careful about breaking down every category into a massive tree, but there are then even two categories here, which is there's stuff that's definitively new and definitely part of the kind of a new tech market. And then there is a lot of stuff that is, extensions of the existing business model uh i would argue a, that the go ahead this is an interesting distinction uh <laughs> it leads into something i want to talk about later which is how these uh types of new technologies interact with um well uh, new to us well maybe new to everyone but how they interact with legacy infrastructure i think you'll have a lot to say on that too sure sure yeah and i i think depending on the product it's going to have more of a legacy buy-in and then less. So I'll, I'll give you my list and then I'll give you some thoughts on that too. Uh, we use Mint for a lot of budgeting. A lot a lot of that, I know there's better tools now. A lot of people are really crazy about YNAB, but it's, we'll talk about this a little bit later too, but it's really hard to quit an entrenched workflow and an entrenched system. And I use Betterment for some, not all my investing, but definitely some, uh, robo advising for some just targeted funds I've set up, specifically funds that just have goals that I don't really want to be checking up on that much, and they just kind of exist in the background. And I also use, as we mentioned, some legacy extensions to uh, two different lenders, which are basically just banks, but they're they're e mortgage systems more or less. And like you, I have credit cards. I use. This is kind of an interesting niche vertical. I, I use PayPal and Venmo, Google Wallet as well for just getting money around. And on top of that, I use an online bank, not as my only bank, but I, I kind of have a dual banking model. Uh, one is a credit union in Michigan that has unbelievable interest rates. And the other is Schwab Bank, which I don't mind making that uh, referral because it's it's actually been a really great online bank in addition to being a brokerage as well. So, you know, more of my stuff, maybe 60 or 65% of what I have is on the kind of extension to a completely existing model. Uh, you know, before there was Schwab online, there was just Schwab brokerage and I could have just gone in and worked with the exact same people to effectively do the same things not for the same amount of money, but you know, cost cutting is, is, is part of the, the quote revolution here. Okay, so I'm interested uh, in the splitting of your banking services between the uh, between Schwab and the uh, the credit union. How does that work? I mean, part of how it works is definitely just the fallout from marriage. When you both have a bank you like, you end up keeping both of them. And that was kind of what came into it is is Diane had this credit union in Michigan that she'd been using for years and she really liked it and then I was very into Schwab because I already used them for brokerage and it made the money transfer into brokerage pretty nice and there's just a couple 
there's there's certain things that a credit union is going to be so much better for. And then there's a couple other times when you're really just going to want an online bank. So a good example of a time when you, you like to have an online bank is if you travel a lot and need to take out cash in other countries, they're going to be more targeted to a global type of consumer. And it's just kind of part of their profile. That's that's their focus is, is getting banking from anyone. Uh, whereas a credit union is going to give you much better terms in, in regards to interest rates. And also, if you want to take out business loans or mortgages in Michigan, we'd probably get our best rates ever. Now, we don't actually have any mortgages in Michigan and, and neither of us live there anymore. So there is this this kind of problem of the credit union having much less use for us in that regard. I mean, the, the, the superior lending terms are limited, but I got to say, I mean, they, ha- they do, uh, it's 2.85% interest Whoa. on the checking account. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh, granted that caps out at 15% or uh, sorry, not 15%, $15,000, but that's, that's like a rate where if you're just going to have a, an account where your paycheck is kind of just getting dumped into it and, from there, it moves into other accounts. You might as well have something that can earn you close to 3%. So that's that's the big, pretty much the only reason we, we've kept it open. And, and they have good service, and they pay your ATM fees. So it's not like we, we lose anything by, by banking with them. Okay, cool. So that's a decent foundation for like the, the consumer uh, frameworks that you and I are both working with here. Um, you mind if I give my my thesis my pitch on the bull side of this thesis debate. <laughs> thesis away all right so i've got um i'd say probably three and this is gonna give away some of my uh, my crypto tendencies um even if we don't uh discuss that topic but i've got three primary uh reasons why i'm a short and long-term bull on fintech um in the u.s and globally um i think that any company can basically take any a company could take any of these three strategies and do fairly well um, relative to their incumbent competitors. Um, the first thing is just like offering a branding uh, product and user experience that regulators um, and general and general elected officials don't find it politically feasible to pursue. Um, it's kind of the, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm, I'm going to jinx this, but the, uh, the Uber model, uh, applied to finance, um, in the case of like technologies like Bitcoin, it's technically impossible, even though it would be politically feasible to pursue, um, that particular, uh, financial innovation. Uh, but the principle holds, if you can build something that's just good enough that people want it, um, and that everyone is a fan of your company. Um, the regulations, like, I don't know if it's taboo to say this, they, like they don't so much apply to you until you're no longer a good corporate citizen, which is something that we've kind of seen with SoFi as well. Um, the second one is um, it's very easy for, uh, while like regulatory issues are for sure a moat, in financial services, like they're perhaps the biggest moat. Um, smaller tech-focused companies have a much easier time um, once you get past like the initial hurdle, operating in a highly uh, regulated environment. Um, if you can systematize uh, a lot of the overhead that's involved with compliance, um, and there are a lot of companies that 
handle this really well. You can be a, a service provider in that compliance space or simply just operate as um, a, a regulated entity far more efficiently than any incumbent can just because of the pre-existing systems. And the third thing is, um, and you might not like, that, not like this one very much, but unbundling Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg has for the longest time just been a massive uh, Frankenstein's monster of analytics, um, messaging, everything for institutional finance. Um, this is certainly stra straying away from the, uh, the consumer-focused um, bit, but um, it even touches that because Bloomberg has been priced so far out of the consumer investors um, range that a lot of companies can come in, offer products that are like modernized and technically superior to Bloomberg's main investor offering and um, price it such that the retail investor ac actually can access the thing. Um, so those are my three. Uh, unbundling Bloomberg, outmaneuvering like highly regulated and labor-intensive incumbents um, and offering such good product experiences that regulated officials or uh, elected officials and regulatory bodies either can't keep up or find it politically infeasible to. What's your uh, your bear thesis? So I, I want to uh, kick this off by just saying many people who know me know I'm kind of a perma bear on a lot of things. Yes. And I do that half as a completely theatrical move and half because it's it's really my take on a lot of issues in the economy. So I would also say this. I'm not rooting for the bearish incumbents to reign. Uh, I'm not rooting for us all to be emailing our mortgage agent docs that we should not be sending via email in 20 years just because somebody couldn't get a platform together. I'm definitely not rooting for the bearish perspective. But I do think that a lot of, a lot of things kind of regress to this weird level of supporting incumbents and then also supporting incremental innovation. So a couple of my my big things have to do and and you know our two takes on this don't necessarily fight directly with each other so we may just you know shake hands and say yeah good debate uh because they're not exactly on the same plane but one of my big things is just the laziness of kind of consumers and and I'll just say specifically american consumers that just because there is a better solution out there, particularly in personal finance, they're not so likely to choose it. And one of the really you know, damning articles that I was reading in preparation for this was actually a bank rate article that just says the average American consumer stays with the same bank for 16 years and the same checking account for 20 years. And, you know, I... I was just telling you how we stayed with the credit union my wife had in college. So maybe I'm guilty of this too. But we also stayed with them because they had a 2.85% interest rate. Uh, when the bank that I had used through high school, which shall not be named here, uh, decided that it didn't want to offer me money orders at any discounted rate and wanted me to just charge the normal rate for money orders as if I'd walked off the street, I decided... I'm not really getting anything from this bank. They have no decent interest rates. They have nothing for me. They're just a megalith. And I immediately went shopping. 
and I think I'm probably a bit unique in that regard, but the fact that people aren't willing to shop is inevitably going to limit the market for this. And I, I think you invoking Uber is smart because I do agree that Uber did a great job of overthrowing the incumbents. But I, I really think the incumbents had delivered this gross level of service. So in many places that aren't cab oriented, there was actually just pretty much no service. So your alternative to Uber was drunk driving. And drunk driving is a pretty bad incumbent. Uh, so in those places, Uber could just completely flower because they didn't even have to take over an incumbent t- cab industry. I mean, New York was the interesting case study because it's obviously the big cab city. But I'd already lived here for a few years when they hit the market. And the biggest issue is because I always lived in Queens and Brooklyn, I could never get a yellow cab back to Queens and Brooklyn. This is such a big issue that they actually, uh, Mayor Bloomberg got the green cab program started, which didn't actually get off the ground till de Blasio's first term, ironically, after Uber was already in New York. Uh, so it was kind of just one of those weird innovation moments where they they both kind of solved the problem at the exact same time. And the green cabs would have been, I, I don't know if solution is the right word, but they would have definitely helped the situation. I mean, I, I know I've taken a few of those on occasion. But the incumbents were extremely bad in Uber's case. I mean, just just negligence up the wazoo in terms of how they do their job and what their customers have come to expect of them. I would say a lot is of that is true with the major retail banks, but we don't see the level of customer complaints and backlash. And I wonder if this has to do with the taboo of kind of financial topics in our culture. People want to approach a lot of complex topics in their life and they're they're pretty good at talking about things like love and relationships or uh, you know, definitely family issues, but one of the biggest things people just kind of leave under the mattress, uh, literally and figuratively, is is money issues, and that is an area where it also causes this kind of consumer stagnation on the consumer finance choices. So I've gone on about that point for a long time, and then the second one is, is somewhat related, which is just that right now we have a greater share of societal wealth owned by uh, the rapidly aging class of the country. And I, you know, you can talk about that from uh, income wealth disparity questions, but just from a pure practical standpoint, this just means that more of the capital in this country is owned by older people who are into more entrenched systems. And in the bank rate survey, we're actually more likely to be sticking with their existing bank. So that's going to be a slowdown for innovation. And I think you can you can mirror that slowdown where the other key consumers in any given market, healthcare is the greatest example. The key consumers in healthcare, of course, are the elderly. And we know without even having a uh, debate about it that healthcare is just one of the most technologically backwards industries that's still just trying to claw its way out of the 80s. And yet being such a big feature of our economy, the consumer base is just now at a point where they're demanding some more kind of normal modern standards around healthcare. So I, I do think the aging contingent of wealth is is going to be a big issue for innovation. And then I think the final thing is that the entrenched players here have just a lot more power to push back. Uh, and it's primarily being that they're sitting up on top of wealth they're sitting on top of a good amount of regulatory capture. And I think this is actually where the regulation is more dangerous to me. I, I agree with you. I don't think the regulators can quite keep up, but I worry about the the well uh, the well 
funding of the more lobbyist class, the kind of regulatory capture aspect of the major financial industry, basically handing legislators the exact laws and the exact regulations they need to put their competitors out of business. And that's something we see as definitely a problem in consolidation and an aspect of regulatory capture that I just think is really dangerous because, you know, you've got obviously our entire Congress doesn't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to knowing anything about innovation, you know, with some very small exceptions in primarily the younger ranks of the membership. But outside of that, you know, they've got major incentives to keep the incumbents at play. And then the incumbents have got their incentive to participate in regulatory capture. And I think one other side, small note of this, but we'll talk about this more on the institutional side, is that I actually think the incumbents are going to, because of the way market equilibriums tend to work, they're going to start looking more favorable after a certain amount of disruption has happened. So I know I, I kind of snuck in three and a half points there. <laughs> we can just argue on the first three if you want. But I think I think I am pro-innovation. I am a bull in my heart. I am just a bear in the way I've been taught to think about the world. And I guess that's those areas are where I think that people are not as financially motivated um, from a perspective of choosing good consumer habits as, as I think we'd hope they are. Interesting. Okay. So it's interesting, like particularly interesting to me, I just think is the, um, the yellow versus green cab point that you just brought up. Um, it kind of reminds me actually of something I was thinking about on the train today in context of this conversation. Um, in maybe before, the 1980s, and I'm like no scholar on this history, but um, I've read enough to know that um, before the 80s, there was not a great deal of financial innovation at all. Um, most financial products um, were legislated into existence in the same way that the green caps were. Uh, if you were a banker, your career was not something that was at all associated with like coming up with a new product or uh, structurally changing your industry and providing new things. Um, it was, I'm going to do this thing that I've always done and that people have been doing for the past 600 years. Um, I'm going to charge the same prices as everybody else charges. And that's just the way it is. And if the government wants to do something, then they can create a new kind of product and we will follow through on that because that's what we're supposed to do. Um, and it's really, I, in the 80s, you started having somewhat um, greater, well, due to some currency and interest rate uh, problems, inflation problems, uh, you started getting a lot of derivatives innovation. Um, and But not a great deal of consumer finance uh, innovation beyond, I think, uh, like, I don't know. When does the when did the first credit card come out? Do you know that? Credit cards have been in existence for quite a bit of time. I want to say the nineteen seventies, but that's not verified. So I'm I'm looking at <laughs> online right now. I remember I was listening to this in regards to the uh, chip and pin technology question, which it turns out we had had we had had chip technology for credit cards for a really long time in Europe. They were just never never used in the US. Mm-hmm. I could really be overselling how early this was. History. 
Early charge cards. The charge plate was developed in 1928. Whoa! Wait. This can't be... Yeah. That's not a credit card. That's we know it. Well, it's... Have you ever... <laughs> this is a funny thing, but have you ever gone into a livery vehicle or gone to a really old restaurant where they do that thing where they scan your card on a carbon paper nope. and they take the imprint of the number? I know that this is was a thing, but I've not... I've never seen it done. It actually still exists in some places in New York in particular. But that would be an example of you could have a credit card system that predates magnetic tape at that level because it's basically just a pin number system that, you know, kind of guarantees a certain amount in an account. And in that regard, it's it's kind of just like a on-the-go ACH. So I, I don't, I'm not too shocked that it was that earlier, but... Uh, yeah, the revolving credit looks like the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you were on to a point there. Oh, I was just um, pointing out that it's interesting that those two industries um, that we brought up so quickly, um, Uber as the like the corollary to financial innovation, um, they were approaching an industry that had traditionally uh, been... Well, it had been restricted in its uh, medium of innovation uh, to the degree that nothing changed unless a law forced it to change. Um, That's neither here nor there on our um, primary point of debate, which is uh, consumer-focused financial innovation. But I thought it was worth pointing out. Yeah, it's a good point. And I I think... That's, you know, there is a there is a role that governments play in the kind of ongoing innovation economy. People point to R&D grants at universities as being a great example of this. Uh, NASA is also a good example of this, certainly more so in prior generations. And, of course, the military, uh, that's often somewhat dubiously at times a, an excuse used to continually fund very very large military initiatives is mostly because of the innovation side benefits and when you look at robust eras for wartime development you can you can definitely see the side effects i mean world war one world war two being chief among them especially world war one a situation where we went in with basically horses and cavalry and came out with tanks so i do think there's a good case for the kind of the level of innovation that war can prompt albeit it may not be worth the cost. Anyway, to your point about about the legal system and about the role of government in spurring on innovation, I I agree that it, it can have a role. Do you think there might be any? Uh, well, I would like you to. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thesis on uh, why an aging population will specifically limit um, innovation generally, but within uh, finance. It's primarily related to my, this is very anecdotal too. It's not necessarily what everybody quote is saying, but it's a little related to my experience and my vantage point on healthcare technology, which has just progressed at an unbelievably slow pace compared to, you know, other sibling industries. But then the other one would be just the fact that old models die hard. If something has worked for somebody for a really long time, and they're getting to that age, you know, their switching cost is getting a lot higher and they're starting to think, oh, I only got 
20 or 30 years left of doing this. The real estate industry is very eye-opening in that regard, uh, how much of a pen and paper handshake business it is. People in that field, even to this day, people in their 40s that I meet, which aren't even, they're not even old, but they still love getting on the phone. And a lot of that's because they've been trained by people that, you know, getting on the phone is such an efficient way to, to get to know somebody and get to talk to them. And if you're a big phone person, that's cool. But I'm also a big fan of, you know, if you're analyzing something, a phone call with you is nice. But I'd much rather have you send me a spreadsheet with your breakdown on the deal uh, and, and certainly an email with more bullet points and things I can digest over a longer period of time. So an email is not even that new of a technology, but this, just an example of the way that old habits die hard. And, and when you look at the real estate business, there's, there's kind of disruptors, quote, lining up along the edge of the consumer mortgage industry. I mean, it's just, it's a huge industry. So if you can be the one to crack that nut, you're, you're going to do well. But it's one of those things where you, when you talk to the actual investors, uh, you know, retail mortgages for regular people, that's obviously the big one right there. And they're... That's a different discussion. But when you talk to investors, at least, they're just stuck in these old ways. You know, they got people they know over at the credit union and they actually print them up paper and they bring them their proposals and the whole the whole nine yards. And like I said, these are people in their 30s and 40s, but they've just learned this stuff. It's the way the system is. It's the way things tend to work. And I think those old habits die hard. And then with older consumers, it's going to be a similar, similar problem. Um, and I, I think... It's very anecdotal, but even just looking at the older generations in my family, they're all people of means, but if you want them to do something new, change their workflow, they're they're they don't know what robo advising means, but they don't it doesn't sound great to them. They don't realize that it's essentially what they're doing right now because they basically rebalance their own portfolios. But you know, th- there's just this this uh, step you got to get over that I think just gets harder and harder as the uh, age range of your consumer goes up. But uh, go ahead and refute that. I'm, I'm sure you've had different ideas there. No, actually, I think that's on the money for sure. Um, my thought on uh, an aging, like median, uh, well, an increasing median age of the population was that um, as your average person shifts your um, instead of there being like an increase or a, a decrease in the need for innovation in any particular market, it's just a switch in the type of product. Um, like if you think about it today, I I would be really hard pressed to come up with a single example of any financial innovation that's happening around estate management or um, tax planning things like this that are we t- traditionally associate with an aging population. And I'm cautiously, I think, optimistic that um, as that, uh, as the like, percentage of the population that is over whatever age at, like, at whatever age at which people start considering these things um, as personally important for their family, um, there will be, enough demand that uh, those products will be driven into existence. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I think it's worth noting too, not to just 
tear down my own side of this debate, but I'm <laughs> I'm more of a short-term bear than I am a long-term bear. I think all this innovation becomes relevant in the long term because in part where the generations line up. You know, once we're the aging generation, we're still going to have expectations about those industries that are different from them now. And I think we're going to healthcare is going to be a great a great marker for this because we're we're going to start seeing it. It's going to feel weird. Healthcare is going to go through these disruptions, but the disruptions are going to be things that were around in the 90s that aren't actually that special, but they are actually going to change a lot of things. Uh, more online scheduling systems for doctors. When I started using them, I guess six or seven years ago, they were on the rarer end, but now I'm at a point where I'm actually submitting more questions to my doctor in online system. And I also think, and I've looked over product proposals for stuff like this, uh, had a, I can't even remember what this was. It was years ago, but you know, people have long been talking about dermatology being something that can definitely be practiced at least in part in a telemedicine kind of format, which is basically you get in front of the webcam and show the dermatologist what's going on in your skin. They could probably give you a prescription from a distance and just imagine the efficiencies you can get in those little niches. But then again, you know, you think to yourself, video chat with a dermatologist that's not exactly disruption i mean it's it's gonna be huge for sure but it's not there's nothing so groundbreakingly new about that technology right uh it's not it's not blockchain based scheduling with your dermatologist or something and i I think it's going to be on this weird lag and i also think that about a lot of consumer finance industries is they're gonna move slower than we think and it's going to be the kind of the old value investing fundamentals are going to play out that these companies we think are near death are going to be relevant for 15 years longer than we think they are and then they're actually going to die but everyone was expecting it at that point mm-hmm. so it's more of a short-term short-term bearishness uh in that regard so when it comes to uh healthcare, have do you have any thoughts on uh the way that insurance works currently this is a topic that i am woefully uh illiterate on <laughs> Um, to my own detriment, actually, but um, I'd love to hear we your can thoughts. Have, we can do, yeah, we can do a brief insurance interlude. Uh, it's hard to talk about health insurance without talking about government policy. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's hard to talk about finance to, without talking about government policy. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, we're kind of using regulation is kind of a catch-all phrase we're using for that, right? Um, right now, I think we've got. I'll just I'll, I'll summarize quickly. Um, but I think we've got a health insurance market that is very confused and has a variety of different models injected into it. So if you're a certain age or if you're a certain low income level, you have a socialized medicine system available to you. It's called either Medicare or Medicaid. And if you're another kind of person, you have employer provided health care, which is weird as a concept because... Uh, I I do think, you know, most economists will agree that one of the biggest distortions in our tax system and our healthcare system is the fact that we have this expectation that employers provide healthcare. So, uh, you know, that would be, it'd be a little as if we just assumed it was the most natural thing in the world for your employer to provide your auto insurance, which sounds bizarre when you say it, but that's pretty much what we do here. (laughs) And then we have this growing you know, direct to consumer market that's 
more or less made up of the exchanges. And uh, there's also supplemental insurance plans if you want kind of a, a gold plan on top of your your Medicare or something like that. You can you can get supplemental insurance plans. So th- so there's kind of almost five different markets working in one, and they each have different features, uh, certainly pluses and minuses, way different expectations. They focus on different populations and people. You know, unlike when you have say you have five different five different ways to get a mortgage right you know at least all of those or you know four out of five of them are available to everybody and it's more or less just your choice in this particular case you're basically shuffled into one group just based on some factors that are with your within your control but mostly factors that are out of your control like your age and uh, income and things like that so i think that's where it's 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 like five different markets and then it's not really a market at all because you you can't ever jump out of one market to another. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only other market I can jump into is I, I have employer provided health insurance, right? But the only other market I could ever jump into is the individual market. I could never, well, I could get Medicaid, but I'd have to basically stop going to work. I mean, you know, I'm I'm way over the limit for that. I can't get Medicare at all. I'm just not old enough. So there's these kind of weird things where there's just different tracks and. Um, I think that's why it's just a totally non-normal, non-normal place. Yeah, I would say the biggest biggest room for innovation there to answer kind of the questions we've got here is just that we, you know, anything that smooths consumer information gathering is good. Yeah. <laughs> so, no matter what the market you're in, as long as you can get quicker info, that is positive, and th- and that's positive for all of them. So I, I'd say that's the only thing that's a surefire bet to me mm-hmm. yeah this is um perhaps the only sector that i uh have a really hard time imagining a way to be bullish on um personal uh well health insurance like everybody's gonna get sick everybody's gonna die so um it's one of those things where like you know that your risk profile is like going to change for the worse long term um and it's, I think, the most regulated niche of finance, um, such that oh, uh, you were you brought up um, group versus individual insurance briefly. There, um, I have a, a friend who worked for um, one of the more well-known uh, individual insurance providers, um, and. <laughs> he was talking to me at this ties in with uh, your regulatory capture point that um, they some recent regulation um, specifically delineated between uh, these large group insurance providers and smaller um, individual insurance providers and said you individual insurance providers um, are not going to be able to charge as much as the group providers will be able to charge and your profit margins are going to be uh, capped out at this uh, percentage rate on any given insurance policy for these types of consumers like XYZ. And um, because of this, they effectively were legislated out of business because the risk profiles of those groups that had been defined by law made it uh, impossible to offer them insurance. Um, at the profit margins that would allow them to accumulate capital enough to 
actually offset the risk of that group. Um, that's probably the most pernicious example of regulatory capture that I've ever heard of in my life. Yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think at, at, at this moment in time, there's just kind of very, admitted by most people, there are very few market forces in our healthcare system and the few that remain. And I'm not suggesting whether that's a good thing or not. I, that's not what we're here to talk about necessarily. But, you know, the few market forces that remain are basically going to just kind of try and scrape up whatever dust they can out of the system. So, you know, there's there's this weird dance that happens where you could say, yeah, that's terrible regulatory capture. But then you say, on the other hand, this is the most regulated industry. So I guess if they're going to be hand in hand with their regulators, they might as well just say, well, we'll get something out of it. And, and part of it might just be the ability to continually operate, you know, uh, because I, I just see that the, the system is, as a little bit, kind of completely problematic the way it is at the moment. Whereas I don't look at the difference between, you know, auto dealers and, and, and selling cars online or selling cars direct to consumer as being a problem. I think we should sell cars directly to consumers, right? I think to the extent that we no longer need auto dealers, that's great. And, uh, you know, the, hopefully our kids will never learn what the term used car salesman means, right? <laughs> uh, so I think that's a lot easier one. Uh, but yeah, health, healthcare is almost, it's, it's, it's a road that if we go down it, it'll, it'll be the next two hours for sure. So in, in that interest, did you want to cut over to talking about more of the institutional side, which is w what you're on too, uh, you know, kind of working at the moment, mm -hmm. or do you want to talk about the financial content business and your thoughts on that? And maybe your thoughts on content as, as bull or bear regardless. Well, content's a, pretty brief topic i think but i don't know maybe we'll figure out a way to make it long um what are your thoughts yeah, on well, inject. my uh we've you brushed up against it earlier t saying that like, any way that you can improve information uh for consumers is a good thing um and just to put a capstone on the insurance thing um if there were the um if there were some easy way to make insurance navigable um, for anyone, uh, that would be amazing. Uh, like this, I feel like that's a phenomenal opportunity for some business. It's just so incomprehensibly difficult. And even getting information about individuals with that would allow you to provide those sorts of services that Mint and other sorts of content providers uh, provide um, would be so difficult. It would, it would, that, that's a great example of where you have to be, I actually think, in the philanthro-capitalist mode. Private-public partnership would be the way to do that. Uh, almost like a Wikipedia kind of mode, which is, is really just, yeah, we can, we can make some money doing this, and we're going to have a presence, and we're going to have a brand, but at the end of the day, information's our business, and therefore we have to crowdsource it, and really just make it available, and and I do think you could get, you could get loads of healthcare reformers and other people who are just interested in making the system work for a lot of people and just say, we're going to do an information project. It's going to be super bipartisan. We're not injecting political opinions. We're just giving people information on healthcare and building the ultimate platform for that. And I think you, you have room for revenue in there. Certainly some advertising. Maybe the insurers are allowed to give you kickbacks. I mean, one of the reasons I say it should be a public-private partnership is... I just think it would be 
so hard to get kickbacks from insurers, particularly this day and age when it's so regulated and we're even, you know, considering more aspects about what kind of medical advertising can go on specifically around drugs and pain drugs. So yeah, I'd, I'd love that, you know, basically the Wikipedia of, of us insurance plans. But I think one of the reasons people aren't, aren't bullish on it is, is because people are worried about our health insurance system. I, I don't think they've, a lot of people in the center on the left, I mean, on the right for different reasons, but they don't think it's long for this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, our current system may only live for another decade. And so I guess, you know, you don't want to build up the Wikipedia only to just say, well, and we scrap that. A month um, after so you finish it. I, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, on the content note, still talking about that. I mean, for health insurance, it would be amazing. It doesn't really exist. Uh, for finance, there's a lot out there. And you were talking about Nerd Wallet. You know, I was talking about uh, Bigger Pockets. There's loads of other publications. There's, I mean, there's Market Watch. To some extent, there's some of the bigger players, you know, your Bloomberg's. Investopedia. Um, yeah. Investopedia is really good, actually. I, I use them quite a bit. Uh, the Billfold, that was another one I was trying to think of. There's a lot of this kind of um, content farm financial blogging type stuff, uh, which I think is some of what the Billfold uses and a lot of these other just who knows, there's maybe 10,000 different sites all owned by the same media parent. But I mean, what, what's your take on the uh, on the financial content? Do you have any personal stake in it? Do you like it? Do you use it? Uh, I use NerdWallet um, religiously. Uh, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm, I've exhausted all of their offerings and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I've seen all of this stuff before. But they've got me hooked on being a uh, like a beta user and like they do these feedback calls with me like once a month or every other month. And so I, I kind of feel committed at this point. <laughs> I, I feel like I have some sort of uh, buy-in with the company and then I have to stick around and keep uh, helping them make it better, um, which is not to say that like I, I don't want to. It, it is a great product. And the, uh, the articles they write are phenomenal. I just have gotten to a point with my personal finances where I feel pretty comfortable. And like there's not any... There, I don't know of any products out there that... Um, that I'm in dire need of at this point, which perhaps is a flaw of the content providers, but um, could just be that I'm just amazingly competent. <laughs> I mean, you're not you're not opening a new credit card every week. Let's put it that way, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think there is a ceiling. This this is interesting that you bring up this point. I mean, I think there is a ceiling to a lot of consumer financial content, and for the you know 12 to 24 months that someone gets really into consumer financial content they'll probably actually be the most impactful 12 to 24 months of their lives assuming they actually get into the right stuff mm-hmm. uh, granted you could you could read a lot of total nonsense online too but but assuming you just got serious about making sure your credit score was good making sure you were running a budget getting the best kind of credit cards you can for annual feeds to rewards ratio and of course rewards that you want you know making sure you have your investments in line whether or not you want to do a passive strategy or you want some kind of active level of strategy making sure you're claiming all the right tax deductions i mean i think all this stuff is it's personal finance 101 and when you do that stuff it has such a huge impact on your life but once you do it it is also a lot of it is set it and forget it or do it again every year right mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so you get to a point, like you've mentioned, and I saw this a lot, you know, NerdWallet's still great because I love their product reviews. That's what I primarily use them for is comparing two different products and having them give me the pros and cons. But the financial blogosphere was a lot like that too. I mean, I was very into all those personal finance blogs. And it's so interesting how a lot of them kind of manifested themselves as this is probably 80% that the, the founder of the blog was down on his or her luck. They were massively in debt. They had three kids. They lost their job. Things got really bad. And they started to learn about... And then it takes a couple different turns. There's, there's kind of a managing budget side which is all just about saving and you know being anti-materialist I, I tend to be pretty attracted to that kind of stuff there's another side that's a lot more about coupon cutting uh i'm not too into that but there is a huge market for just kind of how you do these just super elaborate grocery store runs where you buy 400 pounds of groceries and spend 30 bucks and then there's there is this kind of amateur investment side which is mostly about passive investing uh, sometimes about real estate and things like that too. So, you know, that whole blogosphere, it's the same thing. When you first find the material, it's so eye-opening. And then after a while, you realize, oh, well, I'm doing all these things. They haven't really written an article on a new topic because there are no new topics. You know, at that point, you're just out in the wilderness of, you know, other things you can do with your money. So yeah, I think there's there's a very big use for it, but there's also a ceiling too. Yeah, there's what I've seen with NerdWallet, when I first started, like got interested in what they were doing. They were strictly a content platform and that you could create an account, but didn't do anything. I, and maybe that should have indicated to me that they were planning this. But um, shortly after I got really into reading their content, uh, they released this platform that would allow you to do um, essentially all of Mint's functionality. Um, they simplified the UI a lot, made it look more you know modern um, I enjoy using it more than I enjoy using Mint. <laughs> Mint is just incredibly clunky. Um, and what all of these um, types of like personal analytics platforms do is kind of the same, which disappoints me. Um, and this is perhaps the only like this is this is a kind of a stretch bull position, but um, I could see these types of platforms beginning to um, provide more active offerings. So like most of them, their bread and butter is referral um, or affiliate based um, products, right? Like, what, what's the technical terminology for that kind of uh, a relationship with a service provider? Uh, affi- uh, affiliate marketing should be about right. Yeah. So they do this affiliate marketing thing. Um, I think it would be cool. NerdWallet did this briefly in partnership with a company called Bill Shark. Um, they, because I'd input all my spending, were able to analyze my transaction history and say, here are all of your bills. Um, if you want, you can select one of these and we will call up the company that is uh, sending you this bill and we will negotiate down some percentage and we'll split the savings with you. Um, so like, oh, okay, uh, that sounds wonderful to me. Um, and they knocked 40% off my internet bill. Um, I think these sorts of companies that offer um, like personal finance analytics have under-delivered for a long time on the power of that information and what they can do with it. 
um, especially when it comes to more complicated things. Uh, so like they did that, uh, that bill reduction uh, service, um, but they could also do something like what Wealthfront and Betterment do with tax loss harvesting on your uh, retirement savings. Well, not retirement savings, those are all in taxable accounts, but um, they could do things like give you a pre-filled uh, tax return or say, hey, your income actually lines up with this whatever, like barely known tax loophole. We can essentially digitize the entire like offshoring of your bank account or something like that uh, so that you're, this is entirely legal, but you are going to have a way reduced tax bill. Those services are in the position to do things like that. And I don't think they leverage them to the degree that they could. Yeah. And I think the passive, the passive, I'll just do this for you <laughs> and you don't have to think about it. It's amazing, man. And well, that's, that's something I am bullish on. Although I don't know if, if people choose it always, but uh, I'm a big I'm a big believer in that because it goes back to what I was saying about people just being kind of lazy about personal finance and not really talking about it. So if you could just get something off them, you know, although unintended consequences of that are always interesting. You know, I, I think people not being involved in their finances causes a lot of it causes a lot of the problems that allow bigger problems to persist. I mean, active management in many respects is an industry bolstered by the fact that people don't want to think about it that much and they just want to hand it over. And, and, you know, the lesson over the last 10 to 20 years has just been that, yeah, it's, it's maybe a nice peace of mind, but the fees are killing you. I mean, they're eating you alive. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been a backlash with that. So I, I, I do, I do worry about people getting too autopilot. Because I'm the kind of person who goes autopilot, but I check on it, right? I'm always, because, you know, that's that's what you get for being a bear or a skeptic, right? You're always, <laughs> always concerned about, you know, what 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 is this autopilot actually costing me? It's the anxiety. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, but on the other hand, you know, there's some autopilots that require a lot of human hours to put in. And then there's some autopilots that really aren't autopilot. I mean, we're seeing that with robo-advising. Where, yeah, we can keep the cost low because nobody's up late at night rebalancing your portfolio. It's just getting done, yeah. right? And as it gets further commodified. I mean, I'm making the argument for you now. That That is an area <laughs> where I'm a little bit bullish, where, where I'm a little bit bullish on this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, robo-advisors in particular, I think, just are amazing. Um, if you use Wealthfront's taxable account, um, and they, you have, uh, I'm pretty sure they have tax loss harvesting turned on for all their taxable accounts, like no matter how much you have in there. Um, the tax savings vastly outweigh the fees that they charge, including the fees on the underlying funds. It's amazing. Like, it's effectively like using their service, you're going to make more money than if you just invested in only stocks, no ETFs, nobody took a fee from you. Your net outcome is higher. Yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff. And uh, I use Betterment, but it's very, very similar in that regard. Um, they also turn on tax loss harvesting for harvesting for everybody. Uh, and actually, I think this is this could maybe lead us nicely into the kind of the institutional bit, debate where I do think you're going to have a little more firepower on that. <laughs> but um, so once again, like uh, as I prefaced for my bearish intro for personal finance, I am rooting for the bulls. I am pro innovation. 
I just wonder how often that happens. And one of the things I'm seeing with passive investment that I want to talk about a little bit, because the passive investment takeover is kind of the big thing that's that's it's worrying a lot of people on the street and particularly the active management crowd who knows that they're fighting hard to sell. And then hedge funds had had a rough time as well because then they were underperforming the indices as well. So then everyone's kind of saying to themselves, well, why not just have a robot do this? So I'll just make my case right now and I'll let you respond to it. But the, the fallacy I see with passive management is right now passive management is on a great upswing and as it should be. I'm 100% for it. I want to be for it. But as it consumes more of the market, uh, they say there's 30% of American wealth now is in passive management. Now, that's not just robo-advising. Uh, the majority of that's actually mutual funds. It's not even ETFs, but it, which, have, which are products that have been around for a long time, which you know further bolsters this idea that tech markets are pretty blended. You know They have a lot of incumbents actually already in them. I mean, mutual fund providers are nobody new. They're not disruptors. They're not people who we we say are, are coming in to change the industry, mm-hmm. right? They've been around for a while. Uh, but it is it is eating up a larger share of the market. And what's interesting is I think we're getting, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're going to hit an equilibrium point where it eats up enough of the market that all of a sudden active managers and hedge funds and people who've kind of suffered in this upswing all of a sudden have opportunity because they just have less competition and they can start almost, you know, taking advantage of the indice inefficiencies and the algorithmic inefficiencies and the the uh, price discovery that, that an algorithm that just indexi- indexing on the S&P 500 is never going to be able to do. And just take advantage of these totally human insights that are not based on anything very quantifiable. And I, I do wonder if we're going to get back to an equilibrium where we're going to go through a few years where we we've been in a situation where passive management's doing better than active management bar none. I think we're going to get to a point where they're about in a dead heat. And then I think we're going to get to a point where active is better and it won't stay better forever. I'm still going to be pro passive even at that point, but I wonder what's how the market's going to shift and what level of the equilibrium is going to move back and forth. All right. So I have two thoughts on that sort of state of the market, uh, passive versus active management debate. Um, one of them I held pretty strongly for a long time. And the second one, I'm just starting to form. So it's, uh, it's not going to come out very elegantly, but, um, William Sharp wrote a paper, uh, called the arithmetic of active management. And William Sharp, um, is, his name is attached to the Sharp ratio. It's, uh, effectively a measure of how, uh, how much a particular stock, uh, varies according to its return or, relationship to its return um, over a given time period. Um, this paper basically lays out in like very simple algebraic terms how it is act- like it is impossible for uh, active management to on the whole outperform passive management. And it, it makes sense. Like, if, if you think about the universe of assets um, and how you can possibly access them, and the uh, the cost of having somebody else select some of those assets for you, it it sort of makes sense that on the whole, uh, well, not, not sort of makes sense, it just like mathematically makes sense that on the whole, if you uh, look at the universe of active managers as compared to the universe of investable assets, 
active managers are going to prefer worse because these just make it impossible for that to not be the case. Um, what I think is more interesting and which I ha haven't dug into as much as I'd like to yet um, is something that I've been reading from a, uh, out of a firm called Artemis Capital Management. Um, and they are making the argument that uh, the massive capital flow into passive funds is effectively a short correlation trade. Um, they, what everybody's retirement fund retirement funds are doing is saying, um, like we believe by distributing our money across all these assets that we are going to get return strictly based on a lack of correlation in the market. Uh, what's interesting about that, uh, and what I'd like to read more about, is uh, the massive increase in correlation in global capital markets uh, due to the interconnectivity of uh, asset managers, of exchanges globally, of really every asset class, and especially given the uh, the rise in like even the last decade of quantitative management uh, based on like machine learning algorithms and all that mumbo jumbo. Um, when you have high frequency funds that are just essentially reading statistics uh, from futures markets and making hyper speed uh, transactions like in the Nikkei in one second and uh, the NYSE uh, on like the S&P at another second, like correlation necessarily rises. Uh, and that could have some effect on the efficacy of passive management. Um, something I want to read about more. I, I agree 100%. I mean, correlation is bound to go up. One, just more interconnected globe. I mean, the, the way you get uncorrelated assets in the past was just get things that are different. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, get, get stocks from different kinds of countries and get stocks from different kinds of markets, throw in commodities, throw in bonds, whatever. I mean, and now we have a situation, at least with equities. I mean, it's interesting to see how the equity bond correlation works out. But at least with equities, a massively connected global world. And then you have, imagine the passive investing landscape, which is basically a robo-advising landscape, which is giving pre-filled out menus of allocations to people, mm -hmm. which means, you know, the... You and you and I are programmers. We know how this works. A human might say, ah, I'll give this guy the Indonesia stock and this guy the Malaysia stock. Just want to try them out. Robot's going to pick the Indonesia one every single time if that's what it's pre-programmed to do. And so you've got these kind of menus that are getting produced. And maybe Betterment or Wealthfront has 15. But yeah, they have, you know, 150 million people on the platform. Not at the moment. But just say that's the kind of the upper end of the market cap that they could maybe get into. All of a sudden, you've got 10 million people per correlation, which are also pretty closely related to each other because they're all the same Vanguard funds. So I do think this this kind of sluggish behemoth that might just become the passive market, it's one of the more interesting theories. I've, I've definitely heard about it. And I think just, you know, the, opp the opportunity will move towards the, the highly creative money, which in my mind, first means hedge funds, you know, just organizations that are totally set up to, to give you an alternate trade. But then even beyond that, just active management, just people who've noticed that, oh yeah, Malaysia grows 
you know, 0.3% faster than Indonesia does, you know, in these funds, just based on these large scale correlation trends. So if I just throw my clients into that, automatically I'm getting this edge that the algorithm hasn't tuned itself to. And I, I think we're going to be, it'll be very interesting to see what the long tail on these behemoths are because they might be, they might be managing a machine that just, you know, gets totally out of control in terms of uh, the, the amount of money it's pushing around in the exact same menus of, uh, of portfolios. Yeah. Um, Vanguard is an interesting beast in the world of index funds. Like obviously, I don't know if it, they are actually, but I'm fairly certain they're one. Of, they are the biggest, um, if not, or they are certainly one of the biggest. They are, if not the biggest. Um, they bring in literally billions of dollars a day, which is insane. Um, but they, to my knowledge, are the best actor in. They're number one. Yeah, <laughs> just confirm. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, they are the best actor in the passive fund space of all the ones that I know of. Um, you have fund groups like iShares that have very uh, predictable purchasing patterns that effectively, um, they publish when and what they're going to buy. Um, Vanguard does not do that. They're very opaque about what they're going to buy and when they're going to buy. They just say, this is what we are planning to have this fund hold. And how we actually make that happen is opaque. Uh, and you get the benefit of uh, when you invest in a Vanguard fund, knowing that uh, every active fund on Wall Street is not going to be looking at a purchasing schedule and saying, all right, we're going to buy this an hour before Vanguard executes this trade, and we're going to sell um, the hour after or the minute after um, $10 billion flow into whatever um, index. And it's effectively for those funds that or for those fund groups that don't have a strategy like Vanguard's, um, it's a hidden tax on their performance, which is unfortunate. It's, um, it's probably the one sector where I'm, I'm not like long-term bullish either. We're in agreement yet okay, again. <laughs> interesting. Well, actually, I don't know. I might be, I might be a long, long-term bull on passive. Um, I might be a midterm bear. I like being a bear, you know this. Yeah. But uh but for me, I, I actually think passive is still good for the vast majority of humanity, right? I, I don't think that we just have to find the right model. I just don't think that people kind of middle class or even high earning people who don't actually work in equity analysis should be stock picking at all. I just don't think there's a world where that's a good idea for them. I guess you could ask yourself, is should it be an active manager or should it be a passive fund that's doing it? I think at the end of the day, you know, if you kind of just accept the theory that any any job automated is is a is a job well done in terms of just, you know, lowering fees for the consumer, then it's going to have to go the passive route. But we may have to figure out different things about how we distribute diversification for portfolios and I think it's going to be a it's going to be a bigger question. Yeah, I do want to ask, but you know, we kind of made this just a discussion about passive versus active management. Do you have anything to add on the institutional side? I will argue this has been a very friendly debate, <laughs> but I think it's been good that we framed it like a debate because we're bringing up basically pros and cons on any of the stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, any, anything else on the institutional side you want to bring up, especially with what you're working on uh, with Park Rack? Um, so 
Prereq is focusing on um, a niche of the structured credit market. Um, and we're doing, uh, I brought this up at the start. Uh, I think unbundling Bloomberg is an amazing strategy for anyone who wants to get into the, uh, the institutional finance space, uh, both from like an analytics perspective and like really anything else. Like we talked in one of the prior episodes about uh, how you can take a screenshot of uh, Craigslist's homepage and find like businesses that focus on every single niche. I think you could do that for Bloomberg too. Like you take a function list and just like walk down it and every single entry is an opportunity to build an amazing business. Um, there's a, a product called Symphony that is trying to build a, uh, a platform based on messaging that is, has recently gained a whole lot of traction um, as a, an alternative to Bloomberg's messaging product, which you used to have to buy a whole terminal subscription to access. Um, you have a thought? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm probably not allowed to have any thoughts on that at the moment. Uh, but keep going. <laughs> um, what we do specifically is we focus on uh, the non-agency uh, structured credit market, and we are providing an analytics service uh, in that space that is... Um, we have a guy from that used to be at Bloomberg and we've talked to a lot of traders and salespeople and given them demos and as maybe included in this uh, and started this episode, we, uh, we recently launched that. Um, and everyone is just like blown away by how astoundingly we've beaten Bloomberg's offering, uh, which is great for us, obviously. Uh, but I really don't think that that would be difficult to do for any uh, company that's not focused on like the biggest asset classes. Uh, if you take, it's really just like the classical disruption model. If you take any um, bit of the Bloomberg model that is not a major revenue driver for them, that they maybe have like a handful of people working on, but it's not a focus at all. Um, you can take these things that are massive capital markets, like the non-agency uh, business, uh, where like, billions and billions of dollars trade every single day, uh, and create a, a thriving business out of it yeah and, and and to be fair i'm of my bearishness less bearish on the niche products uh so so if you're if your business proposition is i believe that american consumers will choose the right thing for their finances i am a bear <laughs> on that um if on the other hand your proposition is I assume that paid professionals who are in this business who are looking for an edge will appreciate a system that provides them more of the things they need. I'm a lot more sympathetic to that kind of argument, especially if it's, if it's a narrower set of features mm -hmm. that you want to offer. And I think that's maybe, maybe a good place to leave it too is you, you got to attack a very small vertical and maybe one of the things I see in consumer finance banking and, and the mortgage industry more than anything, probably more than the, the institutional side. But I, I see a bit with that too is, is the broadness of it is, uh, is problematic for me to say that this is going to be the long-term game changer mm -hmm. because I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I like all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. I just, I don't, I don't think mint, Dot com, which is an awesome tool and available for free, has necessarily changed consumer habits as much as we would hope. You know, that the, the quote disruption that we are hoping for 
It's just not happening. The kind of self-selecting Mint users that we have today were the same people doing it on a pad of paper 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And they were the same people doing it on a spreadsheet, you know, 15 years ago. So yeah, I guess that's, sure. that's, that's where I'm, where my biggest bunch of bearishness comes in. Okay, cool. So we're on the same page when it comes to the institutional market generally then. I think so. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm still a little, let's wait and see, especially about crypto. Uh, but because that's more about picking winners too, I think is a tricky problem, which is okay. I'm looking forward get to the a crypto flooded. podcast. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> well, well, it looks like we've we've got a mounting list of guests. Um, seriously, I, I met with a a guy who seems seems pretty involved with it last night too. But it's hard to tell with anybody these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he's he's been doing a lot of crypto consulting, crypto work, and. It does seem like there's this there's this problem of picking winners, and I, I I can't help but relate it to the late '90s dot com boom, where you know at that time Amazon stock and Yahoo stock would have been valued at the same share price. Today, it's not a hard question to figure out which one you'd rather own, and so I think that's that's going to be one of the the things that happens with crypto, which is going to be interesting. Is is I think some models are going to are going to do interesting and unexpected things and others are going to do other things. <laughs> and I don't know if, I don't know if the, if the incumbents always win. I don't know. Do you want to give a little preview on that? Just a preview. We don't have to go too far. All right. Well, my underlying thesis on crypto is that um, there will be no one winner. Um, and in fact, it's, it'll be the exact opposite there. Nobody will care really what digital token asset anybody else uses like we can i think that we will come to a final end state in a full crypto world where uh i can transact with you using some cryptographic token um and you will have only you you will have only the insight into what tokens i have or i transacted with that i want to communicate to you as a feature of the transaction um i think there will be some I, for a long time, I thought it was going to be effectively a broker in the middle. Like, there would be some company that facilitated a transaction between us uh, programmatically. Uh, but due to a few recent uh, innovations over the past couple of months, um, I'm now of the opinion that we will be able to technically uh, effectively do a cross-currency swap that uh, facil- facilitates almost fee-less uh, multi-currency transactions uh, in the blink of an eye, which is freaking awesome. So there will for sure. Yeah, be, I think the uh, oh go there will for sure be like some tokens that die out and some that are the C persistent use. But I, I certainly don't think it's going to be like Bitcoin is the token that everybody uses, and that seems to be a lot of the conversation these days. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, I think the international uses are, they've already grown and they're going to keep growing. Uh, the commodification of it, I mean, it's something I actually believe about Uber too, uh, which is is really just that it's not, they cracked the nut on ride sharing and they opened up the regulatory shell on that. But that's still a very commodifiable process. Uh, New York is already showing that. Austin did too when they kicked Uber and Lyft out of the city. 
all these other models just sprung up overnight, right? And so I think that that's one of those things. I don't, uh, I don't want to scare anybody off or or get anybody's hopes up, depending on your viewpoint. But I'm not so bullish on Uber. I am very bullish on ride sharing, and of course, you know, with self-driving cars, that'll become just a uh, a truism that's that's almost too hard to ignore. So I I agree with you on that too. You know, to the extent that something can be commodified, and there's a plurality of options in the market, it just gets a lot harder to. It's it's like fast food, right? I mean, we, there's always more people in the world, but we still only eat three meals a day. And if you're, you know, if you're not going to McDonald's, you know, you can go to KFC, Taco Bell, Subway. You can go to a million different places now. So, I mean, I think that that always is going to eat into the existing market share, and it's going to create a richer environment for the consumer who gets tons of choices. But uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, presuppose a winner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think there's going to be like a token to rule them all. So maybe we should uh, wrap this up. Um, I don't know if you have any yes. strong feelings about the commercial market uh, when it comes to fintech innovation. Um, and then maybe I'd like to hear if you have anything in mind to know, sweat if you don't, um, what you think, like if you were going to drop everything, you didn't have to worry about expenses or anything like that, what fintech product would you would you work on? Uh, okay. Well, why don't we why don't we kick off with the I I want to be uh, careful about time here, but why don't we especially I guess you're you're up as late as you need to be tonight, <laughs> but uh, let let's kick off with commercial. Let's go with your thesis on that, and I'll see if I can at least respond to it because I don't have a well developed thesis. Well, there. I actually don't either. So you have the consumers who are like have there's a lot of slack and like the efficiency of the financial decisions to make, and you have institutions which are highly efficient generally in the financial decisions that they make, which makes them like moats of incumbents and regulatory barriers aside, which those exist, makes them fairly effective decision makers. If a new technology comes along that is far better than everything that came before, odds are they're going to adopt it. It's their business to make money in finance. The middle ground is the commercial market, wherein you have like small businesses that care a lot about their finances, but are not uh, paying attention to their finances as their core competency. Um, I've seen uh, one company that I've seen handle this exceedingly well um, is eShares, which recently bre- rebranded as Carta. They uh, they offer services to startups primarily, but to all corporations really. They're a transfer agent for handling securities, and they do everything that I think a successful financial uh, technology company should do. They um, make it really cheap early on to get your company onboarded onto their product. They handle every single regulatory uh, issue that you could possibly imagine. Every single IRS compliance issue is just like taken care of in the blink of an eye. They handle escrow accounts and border border uh, board approvals, uh, option issuance and exercise uh, valuations. It's amazing. So I, I see a ton of opportunity for companies like that, but they've executed just astoundingly well. And I don't know if that's the exception to the rule. Yeah. So, uh, it's a good question. I would say that market is interesting. I actually think that market more than anything is going to be very price sensitive. And this is just purely anecdotal. I'm just drawing on the reservoir here, but small business owners 
are not as time concerned in my experience. They're they're just these extremely hardworking, you might describe them as salt of the earth types of people who just, you know, if they have to put in an 18-hour day, they're just going to do it. Uh, but if you can give them a better price on something, they're definitely going to listen to you on that. And I, I've seen this a lot in software Software work with smaller businesses where they're very concerned about the subscription or per use price on, say, payment platforms or something like that. Uh, so the reason I mention this is I actually think that user exper- experiences is maybe the wrong target to shoot for here. And I actually think uh, commodification, lowering the price for a service that you already use is going to be a huge thing. One example I see of this, it's not exactly finance, but it's in the vein, is the kind of the dearth of online legal services that essentially help people form LLCs in Delaware and places like that. And this is a great example of something that's just really commodifying what is an annoying process and something that every small business owner, proprietor knows they need to do, but they just don't want to deal with it and they want to get a good price on it and they want to do it by the book, but... They want to get a good price on it. And I, I think this is one of those things where you could still say, okay, maybe 80% of the small businesses, that it's probably more like 95% of the small businesses in the country still go to their local attorney in town and get the business stocks written up. But the 5% that are doing that online mode are probably paying a third to half the price for it. And as that popularizes, I just see that getting institutionalized as the thing you do when you start a small business. Oh, yeah, you just go online and do this Delaware LLC. So anything that you could do where you're, you're, you're bending down that cost curve for them, I think that's going to be the win in terms of small business. I think medium, medium sized businesses are a little different. They're, they're starting to look at organizational efficiencies, user experience a little more strongly, but I I've never known, I've never known a small business person to not want to go, go in in person and not just talk about a commercial loan with a banker. Right. There's no necessity for them to have to feel like they can do it over video chat or something. You know, they're 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 usually working with people around. So I think we we maybe overestimate the ease of use factor, and we underestimate the price factor. It's kind of my take on it. Makes sense to me. Yeah, you have any other takes? I mean, this is the commercial section. Uh, to be honest, this is not a sector that I am intimately familiar with at all. Um, I, I mean, commercial is kind of a broad topic. It encompasses small to mid-sized businesses, which is what we've kind of de facto been discussing. And it also encompasses Apple and their tax strategy. So it's broad. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, we could go yeah, big. From, like, from the, when we're talking about bigger companies, I, I really don't see much changing. I, they benefit from... Um, like the full undivided attention of investment bankers worldwide. They, uh, in some cases, dictate their own tax policy. Um, They have complete access to the cheapest capital in the world, wherever it might be, and whatever currency might best suit them. And when you're talking about money at that scale, um, I, I don't know if it would be right to say this, but maybe it, it might be true that innovation just like when it comes to finance, isn't a problem for you. You know, everything is bespoke. Yeah, that's, that's a possibility. 
And I think that some, this happens a lot in our industry, but some things are solutions looking for a problem uh, rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I mean, you talk about, there's a, it's a good question to end on actually. And but I'm going to let you go first if that's cool, but maybe you'll just say it's your current <laughs> project, but what do you, what would you want to do if you could drop everything? Right, so my, my, just do, do a FinTech project. My two things are, uh, crypto and structured credit. Um, and I spend a lot of time on both presently, which is awesome. I'm so glad that I get to do that. Um, a buddy of mine uh, is having me help him with a uh, crypto consulting uh, group that he and his wife have gotten off the ground and they're doing some other stuff on the side with that as well. So maybe helping them out with it shortly. But um, if I were to stop everything, I probably would want to look into um, figuring out ways to automate the loan servicing business. Uh, loan servicing right now is one of the most highly regulated businesses. Um, one of the most labor intensive things in finance. Uh, and you get a lot of people whose job it is to basically work the phones and call people who are in horrible situations in their lives, um, having their financial life fall apart around them and berate them to try to get them to pay you your money, you know? Um, and a lot of it is like just collecting the same information over and over again, um, making calls over and over again. Uh, and there's a lot of room for legal error that get companies like Aquin, which you may have heard of uh, recently in the news, um, and a ton of legal trouble uh, with everybody in the United States, effectively, and that almost destroyed their business. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for implementing uh, chat uh, AI, either voice or text for handling a lot of that stuff. Um, automating the calling, automating the, uh, the interactions such that you don't have those regulatory issues. I think that'd be a lot of fun. It'd make the world a, little, a whole lot of, uh, it would make the world a better place to not have to deal with those sorts of, uh, situations on either end. I 100% agree. Uh, on this note, I would, but you gave me, I had to think about it a little bit, admittedly. And I don't know if this will be the best answer for me tomorrow, but I'm just going to say it for now. I would like to have, and I think this this is slapped right into the face of regulation in a pretty serious way. But I would love to have a more robust marketplace for... I mean, this is this is huge, just given the size of it. But more or less, being if I got an old pair of skis in my closet, you know, I don't know anything about the ski market. I really don't. But I know where I can go to get a reasonable, educated appraisal and bids on those skis, and that that'd be eBay or you know maybe Craigslist. Although educated, I don't know if I'd use that word, but. There's, there's basically places I can go to determine exactly what the feasible American market will pay for my skis. And it's extremely hard to figure that out with a larger scale bundle of assets or just kind of an open-ended 
project. Uh, so, give you an example. If you say owned a, a contract to do maintenance for a software project, you know maybe there's IT companies out there who would love to just buy up extra contracts. You know they've got Slack in their their labor calendar and they they love to just buy up all the income that comes with that, right? I'd love to have a marketplace to just get a gut check on that and also also auction it off. So I, I, I can only imagine the regulatory insanity that would come up with some marketplace like this, but this is really what I'd want. Uh, say you owned, you know, three houses in a neighborhood. It would be cool to be able to just bundle them up and say, hey, what is what is this essentially, you know, three unit property work to you even though they're they're three separate properties you know you'd say hey they're all run by the same llc you know real estate marketplaces kind of do stuff like this but i I would love it if it was just more purely generic is i have this thing that produces income i would like to throw it out there and see what somebody thinks that income is worth either as a value add or um, as it is you know, one of the things I've, uh, one of the platforms I found completely interesting, and I, I do want to do a show about this sometime, although there are actually podcasts about it, but uh, website flipping. Have you seen anything on this? I have not. So there's a whole community of people. They're a lot like real estate investors, but they, they invest in websites. They just buy websites that they don't think are performing super well, and they, they, they feel they can either push up their revenue target or do better advertising and it's this totally bizarre community of guys i listened to the podcast read a bunch of the articles it's not you know i i had always assumed it would be a bunch of developers who are just oh yeah i can add a couple features and then it's a nice value add but it's not at all it's uh it's people who don't even write software at all and they just basically buy up profitable websites and then reposition them by adding a better ad strategy or improving their SEO or something like that and then and then resell them basically. Interesting. That's called website flipping. Interesting. So and so markets like that really introduce interest me. I mean secondary markets for all kinds of stuff. It's like a a, a micro scale uh structured credit market. You take all these disparate cash Pretty flows much. and you uh, package them up for a secondary investor. We should build this, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you what. When we're when we're both next have you know that that massive lump of uh, free time, energy, and capital—the <laughs> dream. Yeah, but you'll have all the expertise coming out of it, and I'll have all the expertise of what it's like to manage a giant HR process. Oh boy! So we'll have both those. All right, dude. This was a good conversation. It was friendlier than. Well, not than I expected, but then maybe the listeners expected. But uh, I think we, we touched on some good stuff. That was fun. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. 